This is The Thirst Time, presented by Trap Brewing Company. It's like, how can we elevate? How can we pack as much flavor into our beers as we can? You know, first it was hops, and then it kind of morphed into a bunch of other, like fruits, for example, is like a big chapter in our story, and so is stouts and, and any adjuncts that we might put into those. And the, I think the idea was, okay, how can we really make sure that if the cancer is only foil on it, like you're gonna open it and you're gonna be taken on, a, on some type of journey. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most creative minds in the craft beer industry today. This week's guest, it's a bit of a special one, is Henrik Fenty of a little number called Omnipolo. So I've had the pleasure of interviewing some very influential folks in the craft beer scene, and Henrik definitely sits high on that list. Omnipolo were a game-changing brewery and have had a huge influence on the craft beer scene we know today. Now, I don't want to give too much away, so let's just get into it. I was lucky enough to catch Henrik uh, as he was passing through Manchester. So he came to the brewery and we sat and we filmed this interview. Uh, I need to get all of these online, but they will be soon. So you can sit down and you can watch it as well. But yeah, let's get into it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the Thirst Time, and this is our interview with Henrik Fenty. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? Wow, that's a big question. It's a big question. I mean, I studied, I studied in, in uh, London for four years, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a single good beer in those four years, because I was just kind of embedded into this student community where you drink Carlings and you know, different type of fruit mixed yeah. beer things, Bradler type of beers. And I came back for a job in Stockholm. Um, by chance, a friend of mine who I was studying with, her dad ran a company that had, they had a bunch of pubs, English style pubs. And these pubs were focused on, on better beer, mm-hmm. you know, craft beer, but kind of the 1.0 version, which is great English ales, Czech lagers, I mean, very Eurocentric. Yeah. And then slowly these American beers started coming and it kind of just like dawned on me that this is going to be a flood wave um, coming this way. And, and I worked there for six years and I remember kind of the first week working for that pub chain. I had a small craft brewery at the time in Sweden called Oppe Gorge. And they're very big today, mm-hmm. but they had made a pale ale with some type of American hops in it. And I just had it and it was kind of like being taken on a journey, you know, into a forest or something. It was like that first IPA kind of experience for me or hop, American hoppy experience. And um, that kicked off an interest, which later turned into a homebrew hobby. Like, you know, a lot of, a lot of our peers, I guess. And that, you know, years later uh, became kind of Omnipoyo in, mm-hmm. in, in the form that it was for the many, many years as a contract brewery and now as our own production facility in, in the church. So that is, yeah, it's quite a common thread, isn't it? Like that, that journey from American kind of hoppy beers arriving on our shores or in, in Swedish shores, homebrew. Were you kind of trying to replicate those beers at, in a homebrew setting, or were you, you know, Omnipolo, for people that know you as a brand and, and, and as a brewery, they're gonna think certain things. We'll get to that part of the journey, but 
were you diving into big stouts or, and that kind of thing, or were you very much focused on drinkability of like pale ales and American style beers that, that were coming in to the market at that time? I think it was definitely copying anything and everything I could get my hands on that yeah. I liked, but I realized pretty quickly it was easier for me to brew more expressive beers and make them drinkable and, mm -hmm. and nice. I mean, it's hard to brew a clean pale ale or, an, or a lager for that matter. So it was like pretty quickly, actually, I started brewing big beers, 10 ABV plus stouts. Wow. And that kind of became like, wow, this actually tastes better than I can get commercially. Yeah. Like, you know, this, yeah, it kind of like the point of making like the, all the labor going into homebrew kind of was very quickly like apparent to you me. You want that. a big pail. Yeah, like you bring those cans or bottles uh, rather over to someone and yeah. you show them what you've done at home. They're going to be more impressed than if you bring them a you know, half-ass pale ale, if you yeah. will. Yeah, um, that's interesting. So it became kind of a, like, but that was as a home brewer because when I, we started brewing commercially, the opposite kind of held true to me. It was like, I don't want to make something that excludes people. So the first beer we made was a Belgian-style uh, blonde ale with a touch of American hops in it. Mm -hmm. And that was like kind of a, it came out of a frustration of being in this pub chain context, which I was working in. And then as soon as I'd leave that with a friend, I'd be offered macro lager and that would be it. So it was kind of, you know, an attempt to try to bridge that gap between, you know, crafty beers that I was drinking at work <clears throat> and kind of a more, you know, inclusive beer world, I guess, in, in the regards that I wouldn't want, you know, Omnipoyo to be a niche product for yeah. niche people from the onset. This changed actually a couple of years later. And, and what, like, just to give people like time frame, yeah. like, we're talking quite a while ago, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this, which is the birth of Omnipoyo. So That's it's right. like 12 years yeah. ago, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. The Swedish market's very interesting. Uh, I don't want to like dive too deep into it because I don't want to, I, don't, I find it interesting, but some people might not yeah. find it as interesting. Um, the government basically owned the kind of the retail arms of, of alcohol sales. That's right. Um, what was, but draft is slightly different. Bars can kind of buy off breweries direct. And you were saying step out of the place that you were in, which was a British style pub. I think I know the ones you're talking about. I don't know if it's the same ones. Um, what was the offering at that time? Was, this, was there anyone in Sweden? You said there was one brewery producing a pale ale, but... There were a couple, There yeah. was a couple of things bubbling yeah. away under the under so There the were about 30, I think there were about 30 breweries yep. in Sweden at the time. Um, I think today it's over 400. So right. it's grown rapidly. Yeah. Um, and they were doing uh, sessionable pale ales and lagers, mm -hmm. essentially, and the occasional... Imperial Stout, yeah. one specifically that you know captured my imagination and more or less the rest of the beer world was a brewery called Narke Kulturbryggeri, and they made a small barrel-aged, clean barrel-aged, so no bourbon or anything, just wood barrel-aged Imperial Stout. Came in a very small bottle, it was like 9.5 ABV, and it ranked the number one beer in the world. Wow! Like in 2004, 2005. 2006, I think. Um, and it became kind of a phenomenon around mm -hmm. the Swedish beer scene. It's like, here's this brewery and they're doing something called like a Nordic Porter. Um, and uh, we, were, we, were, we had access to that beer. Like, it was exciting to see Americans coming in to Sweden just to drink that beer. Like, 
but, that, but they were singular. Like it was them and no one else doing something of like kind of that magnitude. This feels very close to Omnipolo. Then. Very this, much, this, this yeah. Is, so, that, so that was a huge influential... Huge, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Amazing. I mean, we were, since I was working for this pub chain and they actually made a specific version for the pub chain, we would go over to the brewery, hand label the, the bottles. I mean, we had a very close relationship to that beer specifically and wow. I had... A, I had access. So I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was exciting. And it was also kind of the idea of kind of trying to, A, like, see what beer can be with mm-hmm. something completely different. I mean, Belgians have shown us that beer can be a different thing than hop cheese, malt, and water. So yeah. that's not, you know, no novelty in, t- in that. But it just felt like it's a chocolate cake, essentially. It didn't contain any adjuncts except honey. It had, like, wildflower honey, like a specific one that they sourced every year to brew that beer uh, but other than that it was just malts and chocolate and i mean just a very kind of like yeah. and you're home brewing at this stage so i'm home brewing at that stage okay. definitely trying to create something like, like that. that yeah uh, plus you know um and what kind of size kit are we on at this time is this um, this, this is just personal consumption yeah these are just you know pots and pans yeah very small yeah like 10 liter 20 mm-hmm. liter uh wow. size. yeah and um, long story short, you know, we, the, the, the idea of trying to like create this beer world that we're partly seeing today, at least in Sweden, like, this was not, it wasn't the case. Like you would go to a great restaurant, you'd have yeah. great wine, no beer, yeah. or one beer. Um, and it's just going to be a lager, big yeah. produced lager, there's nothing. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I guess like coming from, coming from the idea of trying to please everyone, with this beer, this one specific first beer, Leon uh, was the name of that beer, to then two, three beers down the line, mm-hmm. realize, wow, like we can probably export beer to like-minded people in, you know, 40, 50, 60 countries and brew whatever we want. Yeah. It kind of like changed the rules of the game. So this was, me. but when you're saying this now, that was just in your head that you, you had that as a business idea. That wasn't in I think practicality it was, terms. It wasn't even a business idea. It was like, I want to create one beer. Yeah. That kind of bridges the gap between a crap beer and a craft beer. Yeah. You know? Like it's going to be everywhere. Yeah. You know? And like people aren't going to like be able to pin down exactly what it is. Is it sessionable? Is it a Belgian style? Is it a lager? Like it's just going to be very light, refreshing. Mm-hmm you know, crafty, like with a nod to craft beer 2.0, i.e. the American kind of craft beer wave, but also with traditions from Belgium, because I was living in Belgium at the time. Ah, this okay. is part of the story. All right, so you get, yeah. you're getting a lot of influence from that scene, Definitely. which is like, well, I Definitely. mean, so many, when you walk into a Belgian beer shop in Belgium, you just, you've never heard of half of the things there. There's just so many breweries, and beer is such an intrinsic part of its culture, uh, and you can try all kinds of wild things and brewed in different ways and Absolutely. all about the place. So, okay, so if we jump forward slightly, when did Omnipolo become a business? When did you think, actually, this is, I can see a route to market here. It's something that's not being achieved by other breweries. I want to do this. Like, I want to step out of, I don't know what you were doing. What did you study in? London? I studied uh, management, so econo- okay. economics yeah. and management. Okay, yeah. so you got to yeah. step. Yeah, I was going to go I mean, into banking handy. too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But when did you like have that feeling of just like, okay, I want to, I want to give this a try? And also, what is the mechanism for that in Sweden? You know, starting a brewery, there's a big cost involved. Omni, Omnipolo just moved into the church again. We'll get to, we'll get to that part of the story. 
So what was that kind of initial feeling and, and then the, in practical terms, like what, how did you create a business out of it? Yeah, so we had, so I met Carl Grundin, my business partner, yeah. who does all the artwork. That was a key pivotal moment. It was yeah, like, let's, hey, let's zone in on that because yeah. the art and the, sorry if I'm jumping around for everyone here, but that's such a crucial so part. I. Yeah, no, yeah. it's cool. I love it. But Carl is a graphic designer. That's right. So art and beer, like creative aspect and beer came right at the start of Omnipole. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. It came even before Omnipoyo was anything at all. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was in Brussels, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I was working for this pub chain. I got initiated into beer. I started home brewing. And then my wife-to-be uh, got a job in Brussels. Okay. So we moved to Brussels. And I had a year. I, I studied on the side, but to be fair, I was drinking beer and brewing beer. Like, yeah. and visiting breweries. Yeah. And that's the year when the idea of trying to do something commercial um, came to be. And I met Dirk Nods, who is a brewing professor uh, who runs a brewery called The Proof. Like they were also completely instrumental to what Omnipoint is today, mm -hmm. but also helping us to get started. It was like the idea of contract brewing at that time was very obvious to me because I didn't want to build a brick and mortar brewery to figure out whether I could brew beer yeah. or not, you know, on a commercial scale. Um, but it was also unconventional in a yeah. way, you know, like having, like, where is the beer made? Who's making it? We were making every effort to make it as transparent as possible, but we were also trying to be as involved as we could be mm -hmm. in brewing. So I was actually at the proof, you know, on a weekly basis in the beginning, brewing this beer with these guys, um, but very much a collaborative effort. I mean, I knew nothing about commercial brewing. And to be fair, I knew nothing about brewing when I met Dirk the first time. Yeah. So it's like a mentor coming into very my different. life. The proof is a very different place to your kitchen. It's a very different hands. place. And I mean, without him and his team, you know, this, yeah, we just wouldn't have been able to do what we were doing. Yeah. But after having kind of taken that step, it, it was also kind of, it, we, I mean, it's like a chronological thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, here's this beer. How do we get it out? Yeah. And it's like, what is it going to look like? I but mean, also, there's a risky aspect with this guy. At the moment, you don't have a brand. You have you no, have like, anything. you have no market no. to put this beer no. into, but you're obviously paying for someone to produce. Yeah, my mom was paying. Yeah. She lent me 3,000 uh, euros. This is amazing. So you're, you're, just, you're just going, like, we're going to create this product that I want yeah. to create. And yeah. then. You have to find a home. It was literally for it in tank as I was like trying to figure out what it was going to look like. Wow! And I meet a friend of mine, uh, an old friend of mine, and um, she gets super stressed out and she says, "You need to meet my my friend Carl Grundin." Mm -hmm. And I did, and it was like a blind date. It was like, "Here's this beer guy, and here's this design guy, design guy." Like meet each other, and we went for a we had a, I think a sushi lunch and talked about art for three hours Amazing. and beer. And then that was it. Like we just like decided to go ahead with this first beer and it just became magical because it was like, wow, like I can basically, with this type of expression, I can make people drink anything, essentially. I so you like, saw that the visual aspect of, of the beer, like how it looks. He sent me a, he just sent got, me a, you were just like, like what, this is gonna change. He game. sent me like a back of the napkin like sketch of what it could look like the same afternoon. And That's I was like, amazing. if beer can look like that, like we we're going to go places. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. 
Because at oh. the time, you know, it was kind of, I mean, what? beer just looked in a certain way. Like yeah. there were all all these conventions. I mean, today it's a completely different landscape. But um, yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to ha- hone in on that bit because it's a, it's a theme that keeps running through every episode, which is the design element. Yeah. And like, how does design fit? And it's like, but for your brand, it was from the off. Yeah. This is how it's going to start. And if you hadn't met Carl and maybe had like a clear vision for what beer could look like, would you have still pursued it? I would, or did I mean, it give you an extra? We'd already, you were in, yes. Yeah, we were already. But it gave you an extra lift it. of just like, oh no, this is something that can really, yeah. 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 Like there were other, like I was uh, heavily inspired by kind of the scene, scene I was in at the time, mm-hmm. beer wise. But also art-wise, like Brussels is the home of Magritte, you know, this yeah. surrealist movement to a certain extent comes from there. And it was like, we had, like, there was a very clear idea that like, this is going to be like a networking thing where we have people from different walks of life coming into beer yeah. rather than like a beer-centric situation where we were going to try to push beer on people. Yeah. And so art, music, you know, pop cultural expressions of different sorts very early became kind of a part of at least how I envisioned this company to, to look like. But it wasn't a company again. It was like one beer. It's like we're going to make one beer. With the back of the napkin drawing yeah, of what it might we're going to make one, like. one beer that like speaks a different language, you yeah. know? And, um, and that beer happened. And then from there, it was like, you know, hand to mouth. It was like one batch, sell that batch. Buy a new batch, sell that batch. Buy a new batch. And a year passed. And that's all we all we did, but we, you know, we had our and that nine to first five. beer was the Leon. It's like a Belgian blonde Belgian blonde ale, so yeah. something really drinkable. Still our most sold beer oh, in volume. Cool. Yeah, so it's like pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy how that's always the case in some? Yeah, way? well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so cool that you've stayed true to that and not let it let it go and, and carried that forward. And it's so cool that it's a Belgian blonde ale as well, like which people would not expect to get from no. from you guys now. So when you were doing these contracts, you've got Leon, you've got the drinkability aspect. When was the leap into what you know many will know Omnipolo as the um, you know the, the stout game? When, yeah. when did the because again cost wise, I imagine it's going to take a big step up. There's yeah. more um, produce that needs to be used in it, and then if you're playing around with the adjuncts kind of side of things. Yeah. But were you gaining confidence with every batch that you like actually these ideas that I'm having? They feel, in reality, they, they taste good. They, they feel like this, I can carry this forward. I think, uh, so what happened was we waited a, about a year and then we released a second beer that was an American-style pale ale. But at the same time, we also did our first collaborative beer. So we were quite, okay. quite quick on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeppe from Evil Twin reached out to us uh, after having seen our website. So we had like a very wow. kind of anonymous website that had... A blog, basically, like it was, it was just photos, no text, uh, of That's weird so cool. things and beer. Um, and he just reached out, like, "Hey guys, like, looks like you're doing something interesting. Why don't you come come to Copenhagen and we we make a collaborative beer at Amar, which is you know these guys were already like off, off to the races, yeah. established. I was like, I'm going to this brewery. It's great. This dude seems great. Like, it's gonna be exciting." And it's kind of the first time I got on an airplane outside of Belgium, in this case, to go somewhere to brew something with another And how brewery. many beers in it you this time? Like this, is, this was the second beer we brewed. So this was after the Leon. The second beer yeah. you brewed was yeah. with yeah. Evil Twin. So it was essentially happening within the same month. So we, we were 
releasing our second Omnipoyo beer at the same time as we were brewing our first collaborative beer. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> they definitely kind of a moment because it was like, okay, this can be a format, mm-hmm. you know, like A, getting our brand out, right? Like being visible in other channels in yeah. our own, but also the, the uh, creative aspect of really working together same way as other, you know, pop culture expressions, yeah. music, again, art or, or whatever. And it just became a great beer. We started exporting to the U.S. because Jeppe had contacts in the U.S. and he had an importer there already. So it's like by the time we did our third beer, which was Nebuchadnezzar, a, a double IPA, heavily inspired by what I thought Pliny the Elder would taste like. I'd never yeah. had it. But it was like, I mean, that's, you know, the interesting thing is I still do that. Like I'll, yeah. I'll see a beer, uh, I'll see a Sonoma on cask. Yeah. And I'll try to recreate it at home. Because With, without I, because ever it, trying it? Because with, I can't get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah without ever trying it. Well, that's funny because Matt, I didn't even realize this, but Matt, uh, our head brewer, we did an interview with like, the Craft Beer Channel, uh, and he was saying exactly the same thing. He was like, I was trying to replicate like New England beers, but I'd never drank one. Yeah. But I just saw it was hazy and yeah. hoppy, and I was just like, I want yeah. to drink that beer. I can't get it anywhere. So how do I do this? It's a really fascinating way because it's like you have no sense of taste or no. like... All you have is the visual aspect yeah. to go off. Yeah. That's about it. And other people's kind of word Opinion. for what it yeah. is. Yeah. And it's like, okay, maybe I should, try, maybe I should you know, dig into that. Yeah. And so we did it. We did it. So in Sweden, there's a beer festival uh, every year. Mm-hmm. I think at the time it was probably Stockholm, called Stockholm Beer Festival. And it's a, a Stockholm Beer and Whiskey Festival. At the time, I think it was like the second biggest beer festival in the world or something. Wow. It has a bunch of different beverages, but it was like thousands and thousands of people. And we brewed a beer for that festival, and we wanted to like go all the way. Like I basically took a home, like a homebrew clone that I'd made of Pliny the Elder, and I, I wanted to scale that up. But I, yeah, it was a very costly beer to make. Yeah. And I think at the time it came out, it was just the hoppiest beer in Europe, probably. <laughs> it was like crazy hoppy. I think we had like hot side as well, forty so like... or thirty grams per liter of dry hops, and I mean wow. it was like a crazy amount of, of hops. Bitterness as well, like intense bitterness, or were you more? It was. The, it was a the... hundred IBU, so okay. it was like very West Coast, mm-hmm. big, but super well produced because it's yeah. brewed at proof. Yeah. And we had arguments around like brewing that beer at the proof, and they were like, "You're crazy. We're gonna lose half the volume." Like blah 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 blah. And then the beer comes out and it wins best of show in a blind tasting That's of like so cool. 2,500 beers or something. And when those guys are saying that, the proof, like anyone with less confidence and I, you know, the courage of your conviction can waver sometimes. So when you've got people who are way more experienced than you saying, this is a stupid idea, you could just bow to that and be like, oh yeah, maybe I'll just, but yeah. you didn't. I probably should have a couple of other, <laughs> a couple of other times, not that time. Yeah, but, but yeah, you, yeah. you didn't that time and yeah. And it wouldn't best be a, at that festival. Yeah, that was pretty insane. And, and was, yeah. that just, was that just a rocket then? Because it's very similar to, it's interesting because I did an interview with Mikkel at Mikkel and he had a beer geek breakfast and he produced it as a homebrew, small, and then it won best beer at this festival. Yeah. And that was like, oh, maybe I should really yeah. get going with this. Yeah. No, that was our breakthrough beer, for yeah. sure. It was like, we did, it was like before and after that beer, really. Yeah. Like after that, it was like, we got like a big tender at the Swedish liquor monopoly stores, yeah. sold out in hours. You know, we got like, we were selling like thousands and thousands of bottles of our beer all of a sudden. And it gave us confidence to say, hey, maybe we should start looking at doing this as like a commercial thing. Yeah. You know, like release a couple of more beers and 
try to grow. It still took another year and a half to two before we quit our day jobs, um, or at least I did. Carl also did a, a bunch of other things for years before working full-time with, with Omnipoyo. But it was that beer that really kind of like, okay, let's be pretty expressive. And like that's, we're going to find people that like what we're doing if we, if we go all the way. Like yeah. in this case, it was a hops, right? Yeah. In, in the case of a stout, it might be coconut or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever you're adding to the beer. But the stout came, stout, like, it really came much later. Like, I, I started trying to do it commercially, and we had a couple of kind of failed attempts before hitting our first big kind of commercial success in terms of stout brewing. I can't even remember which one that would be. But it was like, well, it just came into the picture, you know? Yeah, and the other aspect is that, that visual identity that you guys were producing at that time because not only are you drinking something that is just tasting like way out yeah. there compared to everyone else's but i imagine the aesthetic and everything you young guys you know there's an a totally different energy to what you guys are and social media and i mean it's media, like yeah. you know building a business on social media is, at the time was kind of a novelty it's like marketing yourself through social media like that really took off too it was like thousands of people could get to know who we were and also the export was very early a big yeah. thing for us. We had, I think, t for the longest time, we had like around 20, 25 markets. Um, and, and then, and then it kind of grew from there. But it was, it was a very important thing to kind of have this networking effect of like going from one country to another and still being able to say, hey, do you have any Omnipoyo? And people be like, yeah, they have it in the bottle shop over there, specialized bottle shop usually. Uh, but, but it's, you know, kind of ties people together. And the US thing came pretty early as well. Then, I guess, that came early, yeah. And because the US is, you've made a lot of ground in that market from, from the, to the point where you produce over there yeah. now? Yeah, kind of so we try, we try to produce as much as we can over there for consumption yeah. in the US. Um, and that's, it's, it's really kind of the vision and the dream is to produce as close to consumption as possible. Yeah. Like shipping beer, here and there it doesn't make sense i think no and so yeah let's go a little bit into like the business that you've set up then so for many people the the kind of logical way that a brewery works if we just go from like homebrew to growing it's like you homebrew okay you get a little bit of investment you get a bigger brewery you produce beer on that you have to deal with all of the uh, problems that come with that because it's you know it's an en engineering problems every everything yeah and then you have to package that beer and then you have to get that beer out the door you've kind of working with the proof you're getting beer produced packaged and then distributed from that so it allows you to maybe focus more on the marketing side and like the creating of the business side so if you were to kind of weigh up the pros and cons of those those two business models how would you address each one? Yeah, I mean, for a very long time, it gave us a chance to grow, be very flexible, essentially, yeah. and also take risk in, a, in kind of the, the best way, I would say, because we could take risk in terms of putting stuff out there that was very expressive and mm -hmm. expensive to make um, and because we didn't have the financial stress of payroll for a bunch of people and I mean it was, it was just us like yeah. very few people working out of an old goat, goat like small goat house cottage in Stockholm selling beer to you know 40 plus countries yeah it was an amazing rush in that you know and also being able to be um 
yeah, a bit more spontaneous, I think. Like collaborative collaborations, for example. We spent a lot of time traveling to work with other breweries. Like if we were to have had a, our own physical space like we do now, it just leaves less time to go visit people. And, and is this just you and, you and Daniel as well at this time? Me and Carl, me and Carl. Me yeah. and Carl, me Carl, me yeah. Carl and, um, and then we kind of, after two, three years, started taking on a couple of other, other people. So we were, for the longest time, we were four, pe four people in this goat house. I think up until 2018, actually. But by that time, we'd also opened a tap room. Yeah. That was a great, um, like, an amazing experience to be able to like, have a physical manifestation mm -hmm. of what Omnipoyo is to show, you know? Because not having a brewery, you know, back to your question of pros and cons, like the con was we couldn't show people where our home was. Like we were from Stockholm, like where do you go to visit Omnipoyo? And there was nothing to show for. Yeah, it's, it was just, like, a, it's just an It's just entity. a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden um, in 2015, we opened a bar that really became kind of a place for people that wanted to drink our beers. Like 10, before that we didn't have any beers on draft more or less. And then all of a sudden we had like, we had the need for 10 different offerings on drafts mm -hmm. at any given time. It kind of just changed our game, uh, you know, again, in the sense that we could like get people in through the door, introduce them to what our beer was from tap one to 10. And the variety all of a sudden became super important. And that's also when the stout brewing really came into okay. the game. I think we, re we released like Noah Peak and Mud Cake. We just released like Yellow Belly, you know, a year before that. Yeah. You know, there was a couple of stouts that just like, like beat up a new path for what we would be in people's minds. It was like, okay, we need, you know, as you are when you have a tap room, it's like all of a sudden you need to start brewing lager beer. Yeah. We never brewed a lager. Mix. Yeah. yeah. So it was like in a very short time, I think in a year, we had to like produce lager beer, be very kind of mindful around like not running out of pastry stout, like pastry stout became like an important part of our offering all of a sudden. It's like, what even is pastry stout? <laughs> well, let's, like, focus, let's focus on, let's hold Pastry on sours, yeah, I don't know, yeah. soft serve, you know, like all that shit that came in in the one, like, it was literally like 2015, where yeah. it was like, we need to have 10 offerings and they need to be like, you know, give a full spectrum. Yeah. Know. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Henrik Fenty. Let's hone in on the stout thing, because, well, when I think of Omnipolar, I think of like innovation, and I think of like pushing boundaries. Was that, in, like, you've kind of spoken already that that, that one beer, that stout, was something that resonated deeply with you and you recognized in it that you kind of felt totally different to anything that you'd experienced before. Yeah. So when you, the first kind of, you'd, you'd experimented a little bit, but when do you think you hit the money with, with the stout and what, what kind of thing were you trying to achieve with it? Were you trying to just achieve something that was just so intense that you couldn't walk away from it without feeling like you've had a, an amazing experience? I think you're like, the idea of an experience mm -hmm. really was a drive, like it was really a driver. Cause I mean, these beers aren't cheap to make or yeah. cheap to buy. And, it, and uh, so that's one, definitely one part of it. It's like, how can we elevate and how can we pack as much flavor into our beers as we can? You know, first it was hops, 
And then it kind of morphed into a bunch of other, like fruits, for example, yeah. is like a big chapter in our story. And so is stouts and, and any adjuncts that we might put into those. And the, I think the idea was, okay, how can we really make sure that if the cancer has only foil on it, like you're going to open it and you're going to be taken on it on some type of journey. Yeah. The, the way I was when I had my first hoppy beer, you yeah. know? Um, but um, we were always kind of mindful I guess being embedded into this craft beer geek concept context, also with the English style pub. I mean, I came out of that six year journey with a lot of pretty um, hardcore beer lover friends and colleagues, ex-colleagues that were, you know, very mindful around traditions. And, you know, there were a a lot of ideas of what beer was and what it wasn't. I didn't want to exclude them, but I wanted to take them along on the journey. It was like, we're going to, that's why I think I got pretty obsessed with rape, rape beer, for example. Yeah. It was like, I'm not going to be able to play around this way if we don't rank high. Like, that's, that's our kind of license to go play around. And so I was very, very, very kind of mindful around, like, trying to manage that whole part of it. It's like, we need to have, like, a clear mandate as craftsmen to do all this other stuff and kind of like, yeah. Like, it had to be well-produced and intuitive. Like me explaining to my boys, I have three kids, what my beer is, it should be easy. Yeah. Like, hey, it's an ice cream, uh, it's a milkshake, it's a smoothie, it's a lassi, whatever. And, and that kind of like, it became a, an important part of it. It's like, how do we capture conceptually what our beers are? So it, just, it doesn't just feel random with the flavor combinations. Like it needs to be like meditated on to the point where you can explain it easily. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like that. It was literally a year when we brewed four or five stouts, and we just started. I mean, it was like, yeah, hitting a note. Yeah. Like if like this this seems to be working. Like let's do more of it. And at the same time, we were traveling a lot, going to the U.S. And like there's barrel aging came into the picture. Like wow, these beers are this is next level. I and mean, it's taken years for us to kind of really build up a big barrel aging program. Mm-hmm. But even at that time, it was like our first beers that were barrel aged were starting to come out. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like something I really enjoy drinking. So I wanted to make it as well. How are you, how are you at this time? Like, are, are you just like filled with excitement? Of, yeah, of man. Because the other thing is that the industry is young. Like the European beer industry at this time is, is quite young in that those those leaps in innovation are big and you are really, you know, the, the other thing is that, that you mentioned is the rate beer aspect of what untapped, like that people might use now, yeah. is that you are getting direct feedback. And, yeah. and as a brand, and a lot of have a, yeah, and a lot yeah. of it, and passionate, especially yeah. in like Sweden and Norway and stuff, yeah. it's like really, really on that shit. Yeah. Um, so you can build a brand around the feedback that you're getting. But also, you must have a level of excitement in yourself that you're just like, oh man, we are hitting notes here. That Dude, I, we've I, been high for 12 years. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was. I mean, and it was. It was really. It really felt like it, we were at the like catching a wave, catching yeah. a wave, honestly. Um, and um, yeah, also like riffing with other people, like the collaborative aspect of being a contract brewer. Yeah was really brilliant for us because it was like every single beer was a collaboration in one sort or another, yeah. in one form or another. Either it was us contract brewing at a specific brewery as an Omnipoyo beer, or it was a collaborative beer at a brewery. And um, that just gave us a lot of energy because it was like, wow, like we can really, like every single trip 
even this trip, you know, come me coming to Edinburgh and down here, I'm sure I'll go back. It's yeah. the same, you know, yeah. it's like you kind of catch two or three new ideas every single time you move. Um, and we were just doing it very, very fast. And also the feedback loop was like intoxicating almost because it was like we would release a beer, we'd get the feedback, it would either be great and then we'd you know, do more of that or it'd be bad and that's even more triggering. You'd be like, next time I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. Yeah, and it's important as a brewery, like to have that is, is kind of incredible, really. Like yeah. that short feedback loop of being yeah. able to, and especially when you get the tap room as well, you can put yeah. a beer on fresh and you can get that feedback loop shorter and shorter and yeah. just sit there and like watch people and just be like, yeah. how are they gonna respond to this? Yeah, that's like the ultimate. Yeah, and yeah. with Carl's work on the, design side were you seeing because you're so iconic like the artwork is so iconic and i think of like um yellow belly yeah just out of this world in 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 what that beer really achieved on the taste standpoint taste standpoint but also the packaging just totally different to anything that had been done before was he in the same we were having fun yeah he was having fun <laughs> yeah that's it yeah. and he was yeah. was he just being inspired by everything around him as well and pushing that into Omnipolar? Did he have a clear direction or was he, was he just like, oh, for these beers, maybe we could simplify the packaging and the beers are so big, but we could bring it right down and just... I think Carl like, works on his own clock. He's yeah. a genius, you know, and I, I think he just, it just felt very, I can't speak for him, but like my impression of working with him was, it, like the art aspect just lived its completely different life. Like it had nothing to do with the beer. It was just like, here's a new canvas and I'm going to go use that canvas, you know, mm -hmm. and it's going to be everywhere. And I think that he was having fun with it and, and coming from, I think it's quite liberating as a European brewer working with a kind of craft beer 2.0 yeah. at the time. For me, like essentially any style we brewed was new more or less. It just felt like we can create a new style or we can do, like, I think, yeah, would we have been in the US, it would have been a different story. It just felt like we had a white sheet to work with. Like anything we jot down is gonna be kind of the first thing that's been written, which isn't true. There's a lot of beer tradition and history in Europe, but on the you know, kind of newer end of the spectrum, it just felt like it was, yeah, uncharted territory. Partly. It feels exciting to talk about it now because I remember being part of it and you're just like, you're caught, it's very rare that you're ever in a, in a, in a market that feels new. You know, like, yeah. I, I don't know, movement in music when you like punk rock comes in and you're just part of something that feels yeah. like it's moving and moving and yeah. moving and innovating and innovating. And uh, I do get like nostalgic about that kind of time, but it must have been different for you because you were, you know, I was working in smaller breweries when we would track, we would just brewing cask down the road, but we had visions of grandeur, you know, where we wanted to go. Yeah. But for you, you are... Yeah, look at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we, yeah. Eventually we got yeah. here. Um, but for you, you're on, you're at the front end of this uh, journey. Like, I mean, you're towing the line, you know, maybe you and like Mikula and, and breweries like that that are really pushing yeah, there the There was boundaries. a group of people for sure. Yeah. And I mean, we were heavily inspired by whatever was around us here in Europe, but mm -hmm. also in, in the, in in the, the US. Yeah. But it did feel like it was... Yeah, you could basically do whatever you wanted. I think Carl more or less felt the same. He was like, this is what beer looks like. Like, I can just do me. And then he did him. And it, you know, the rest is history. But it, it just felt very kind of like unforced. Like, yeah. He would just like, essentially, in an effortless way, present a new packaging to me 
and I would be completely blown away. Like the market's gonna freak out. Like, yeah. You sh- like, yeah, everyone's gonna freak out. Like that's how I felt every single time. Well, just know? like the smiley face, the green smiley face on a black, but like just so simple. Yeah. But very iconic, very pop yeah. art, very like. And just the screen print. Yeah. Like it didn't. I think the one worry I had the first time, or I had a couple of worries, um, the, with the first beer that we released was, a our brand name isn't visible on the on the label like there's just art there's, yeah. a, there's a keyhole shaped form and in the keyhole there's stuff happening and that's like the idea of making a journey into a new world right mm-hmm. but there's no omnipoyo written on the bottle like there's which no, goes against everything which, in like yeah, marketing 101 it probably took us four years longer to establish the brand but then again like you googled omnipoyo there's nothing like they there's just us you know mm-hmm. like we, we weren't like struggling to trademark it or anything like we had created a new kind of thing i guess which is all due to carl like he he was very adamant that we're working with artwork like we're not going to brand this I thing that. and um but it was also since we didn't you know we didn't feel like we were forced if we would have started out by building a brick and mortar brewery i probably would have made some other decisions pretty early on like mm-hmm. hey we need to get the brand out or something and, and it was nice to have a couple of years to spare with that kind of journey in mind. Yeah. Um, but I think that, yeah, like he, um, it felt very unforced and it was just different by nature. Um, well, innovative. And I think that, that word kind of comes into your story a lot, like innovation. Were the points, because you're obviously listening to the feedback loop of consumers, you, get in, you kind of understand what works and there's flavors and stuff like that that work and you're pretty confident that they're going to like coconut in a stout. Yeah. Feel like sweet coconutty, rich stout, yeah. chocolate stout. It's gonna. Yeah. Were the ones where you wanted to flip it on its head and just be like, "We're gonna introduce this to, to, to the market and tell them, like, almost challenge them in just being like, you might not understand this, but you're gonna understand it as something totally different and to- a totally different experience than what you've had before." I mean, we've definitely seen like, that would usually come from a trip or something yeah. to an area where you see a different aesthetic and you say, Hey, this, this is interesting. Like, but could we, how, how could we, how could we introduce this aesthetic into our context mm-hmm. and kind of either dress it down or dress it up or, you know, communicate a different kind of like message, I guess, mm-hmm. around it, but still with this intent of introducing a new style, like a style of beer. Like we did uh, like a wheat beer, like a half of like a hopped Hefeweizen years ago with some American hops in it. Um, that was a collaboration with Siren and uh, Swedish Homebrew. We had like a homebrew competition oh, every cool. other year where every other year a Swedish homebrew would get to go to England to brew with us at Siren and every other year a UK homebrew would get to go to Sweden and brew uh, with us there. And it was just like that beer, when we did that beer, it was like, okay, this is a, like with Carl's packaging, with some American hops in this style. Like, it was selling faster than a lot of our IPAs mm-hmm. are, were at the time. It was just, like, very satisfying to me, at least. Like, here are people drinking this, like, clove, banana, wheat beer. Like, it's an IPA. Like, yeah. we, we're not bound by style. Like, mm-hmm. we're not forced to brew a specific style in order for people to drink it. Like, with our introduction, the way we communicate around it, and the way we, you know, kind of construct the recipe slightly... Uh, we can we can get people to you know choose variety over 
you know, singular experiences of macro log or whatever, uh, still. And, yeah. and I think that happens. Like, again, I'm heavily inspired by cask beer all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, and I have been for a while, but like you come here, you drink it, you realize like it can be presented in a modern context. I think it's brilliant what you guys have, have done around that. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, I've, I've said it numerous times, the cask thing, you don't, you, you don't really realize how special a product it is. And then suddenly you shine a light on it. You're like, oh, this is like, so regional. No yeah. one really does this yeah. uh, in the world yeah. other, other than like British yeah. beer culture. Yeah. And it's this brilliant. product that has only has like a shelf life of like three days once yeah. open. You need to move it quick. You yeah. Need to, yeah, it's really fascinating. So with all of the innovation comes pushback as well. Yeah, man. So you guys, <laughs> you know, beer for a lot of people is, can be quite linear, quite orthodox, you know, fizzy, bitter, you know, la or lager, that kind of thing. You guys are really pushing the boundaries of what people expect from a beer. And I know that with that comes a lot of people. So we talk about slushy machines. We, we've had this uh, debate in the office and stuff, like things like that, they're really pushing the boundaries into, into, into a new zone. Like what, what, what is a beer? It's almost a food product then. I mean, it is a you know, kind of a food product anyway, but um, can you, did that stuff ever rattle you or were you just focused on the journey that you were on? Or were you just like, hang about, we can still do this. We can still like, the first beer we did was a, a blonde ale. Yeah. You know, we might be doing pecan mud pie yeah. stouts now, but we can do that as well. Yeah. No, that's it's a good question. I think I wish I was I wish I was completely unaffected by you know any criticism mm -hmm. because it doesn't really contribute, right? But uh, I was definitely hearing that and but as long as the kind of positive feedback loop was stronger and and again ratings were important like i was very focused on okay if a select group of a self-selected group of beer aficionados are telling us that we're doing a good job i'm not really gonna get all rattled by traditionalists for yeah. example like sure there's you know merit to that as well like it's a great thing that germany has these purity laws because german beer wouldn't taste the way it does if they didn't have them. Like, I'm happy as a consumer. I'm not happy for a lot of German brewers, but I'm happy as a consumer because I get to drink beers that just wouldn't taste that way if, if that didn't exist. At the same time, I wasn't going to be bound by that. You know, it, it's, it's just not our journey, I guess. And it kind of also felt like we were, we always had, for every critic, we had like two, three people that would come in to our defense. Like, we, like I more or less don't answer to any questions on our Instagram, for example, there's always someone else that comes in and kind of explains what's happening here. Like, hey, I'll curate this for you. And it was fascinating to kind of see that, like, you know, having, having at least some type of like backing and mandate to go do crazy shit, mm -hmm. you know? So that, yeah. It's I mean. kind of like a really strong brand aspect as well, isn't it? Because, you know, there's an old saying about to be loved, you have to be hated. You know, that rather than just sit in the middle and just kind of try and please everyone, it's like, if you're not pushing boundaries, then where do you want to be? Kind you know, of, you know, yeah. there's, and, but no one, like you say, no one likes just harsh criticism and, and you're, you're a brewer, you know, you love beer, you love the journey of beer, you love traditional beer, which is something I'd like to dive into later. So, Bricks and Mortar Brewery, 
it's not just a brewery that you guys have got. It's a very omnipolar uh, brewery. You guys have recently, a year ago, if, two, a couple of years ago? We started brewing uh, one year ago, one year, one year ago. and a month, yeah. Ago, so yeah. you guys have set up in an old church in Stockholm. An insane facility, looks absolutely incredible to actually start producing beer on site um, with your recipes. Was that an itch that needed to be scratched eventually? What was, or was it just an opportunity that, that came with, that was too good to, to turn down? A bit, of both, a bit of both, to be honest. I mean, we were uh, dead set on not having a brewery for many years. We just felt like it's scalable not to have one. Like we're gonna be brewing in a bunch of corners of the world where we like brewing to sell beer fresh, you know, for environmental reasons, a bunch of things. Because again, the aspect of selling our beer in many different countries was kind of important to us. Because it was like, there's this idea that we want to export and you know, have, a, have it be a global thing. Um, but at eventually, it just felt like for the purpose of brewing more subtle styles, like sessionable, beers of lower ABV, you know, certain type of projects that might be hard to push on another contract partner, like whether it's the usage of ingredients or process or other things, like it also almost like an experimental facility, like the idea of having our own production just came to be a very strong focus for us, yeah. I would say about five years ago. Okay. So we looked at a bunch of different projects. Um, one where we'd gone pretty far, actually, that fell through for other other reasons. Um, and then the church just kind of fell in our lap and we were like, this is happening. <laughs> wow. It just spoke to you. It was just like, this yeah. is Omnipolo. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is where it's we should art, be. Like, so in this space, there was a an art, like Carl Gerdin had an art exhibition on the top of this space, like it, where we now have the tap room. Mm-hmm. It's like an amphitheater set up where you look overlook the brewery, but... The restaurant's on a balcony, essentially, hanging over the brewery. And he had an art exhibition there. And at the bottom floor, it was a brewery, uh, a, a Stockholm-based brewery that had been there for, I want to say, eight, eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. And they'd done a great job up to that point building with the resources that they had. A, oh, so there was a, a small facility. facility. Yeah. In that, in that space. Okay, That's so, right. Yeah. A, a, a significantly smaller facility. But for us, it was kind of hard to motivate not building a production brewery and that's kind of the transition we've made mm-hmm. so we ex- realized like this is going to be a challenge but once we're ready we're both going to be able to ex- like have it be an experience come to our facility but also be able to share have enough to go around i guess yeah. so that's that was like kind of the journey that we embarked on this was a couple of years ago um and yeah, it's been an amazing, you know, but tough journey. Obviously, the pandemic uh, happened. That was one mm-hmm. kind of in, um, aspect of the challenge. But but more, more than anything, kind of realizing we need to relearn everything we know about brewing. Well, you are <laughs> and running it, it's a business. On you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like this is it's physical. It's yeah. it's all of the troubleshooting that yeah. comes. Like yeah. for anyone that works in breweries you realize that there's a lot of troubleshooting. I'm just yeah. like, okay, that's gone down, that's gone down, we need to package this beer. Yeah. Um, did it feel like just starting again? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It was, a complete, it, was, it, was, it was kind of going back to the home brewing days, yeah. but like slightly bigger size, obviously. And um, that's what's making it exciting. You know, after a decade of doing anything, like having, I've never had a job for more than a decade, you kind of need 
to throw things into the mix that makes yeah. it interesting, you know? And I get, you know, having a, your own facility kind of always presents surprising challenges and other things. So yeah. was, I think it was a very good thing for us as a company. But again, it, 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 it really just distills down into Omnipolo, which is experience. You know, I said this to Mikel as well, which is that when you go to a Mikel bar, you feel like it's an experience and then the beer reflects that and you, it's a total all-encompassing and I can't wait to come and visit you guys yeah, and, you see should, it and you drink, come. drink lagers in the, uh, yeah, in the church. So you guys have innovated so much as a brewery um, and as individuals really, really like pushed the boundaries of what people perceived beer to be. If we kind of look forward for the next five years, breweries are becoming more involved politically, they're doing various different things, working with communities, building communities. It's awesome. But, um, how do you see the next like five years of evolution within the brewery game and within, within Omnipolo as well? Like what, what is it that you guys want to achieve and that you, you would like to see in a broader sense as well? I mean, the mission I think we're all in it for to a certain extent is like to provide variety, right? Yeah. Like we're coming from a like macro logger, or at least we were, like from a macro logger world into something else. And we're, you know, We've come far from where we were, but there's still a lot to do in that regard. I think just being able to expect great beer when you walk into more or less any establishment of higher quality, that's still a journey ahead of us to a certain extent in Sweden. And we are very kind of Sweden-centric on the one hand with the brewery and all the efforts that are going into that production facility and also the distribution in Sweden. Uh, at the same time as we're kind of standing on this other leg, which is to continue to push boundaries of what beer can be. I mean, these styles aren't gonna, you know, just suddenly appear. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to come up with those. And we wanna be part of that kind of group of brewers that keep pushing the boundaries. Like, if I look at our tap list today, it's a more fun space to be than it was two years ago. And definitely five years ago or 10 years ago when we kicked off. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, having, being able to pour an IPA today and see that it's hazy. That wasn't the case, you know, when we started out. Like, that had to come from somewhere. And I think that two years from now, we're going to be in a different space than we're now. And I, so it's like, on a selfish consumer aspect, it's like variety, flavor, and, you know, the kind of progression of beer into other, into new unexplored spaces. But as a business, I think it's very important for us to really kind of like make sure that it has a, a sure shelf space in a lot of establishments that we just enjoy going to, but as it's in people's consciousness. I think that we have embarked on that journey in a more focused way in Sweden again now. And, and you guys are doing it here and someone else is doing it in Pennsylvania or whichever, wherever you want to go, but in, in Stockholm, I think, in Sweden, like we're, we definitely want to be one driving force of making it like a more or less given that you can yeah. drink a variety of beers. Like that's the big one. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? That you feel like, oh, maybe, maybe everything's been explored. And it's like, no, man, there's no. so much still to come, which is yeah. kind of super exciting and also yeah. Where's it going to come from? Who's it going to... I mean, there was the, the Brute IPA thing just like launched through everyone. Oh, yeah, it didn't yeah. really stick. Yeah. But it was interesting. Yeah. Like an interesting concept. Yeah. Just like super dry, yeah. zero-bodied 
yeah. like light, poppy. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to try it again. I can't. Yeah. Like, but Black I, IPAs, where are Black those? IPA, where uh, are those? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's going to be, yeah, Coming make back. a comeback. Okay, Henrik, I, thanks so much for your time with all this, man. It's, again, you guys have been so inspiring in the sense of what a brand is and like how a brand exists in the beer world. Um, I, it's a real privilege to talk to you about all of that thing. So we've got to get to the, the last question, which it's kind of a dreary question, but it's, it's, I'm trying to reshape it into a way that works. But you're at a bar. They can make any beer that's ever been made. They have every beer that's ever been made. They can make anything new that you feel like you would like. There's a TV in the corner and it just says, there's a comet about to hit Earth in an hour. And the barman comes up and he just says, what are you drinking? What beer would you Oh my select? God, that's a hard one. You can have a happier one if you want, but that, that, I'm just thinking of that pre-apocalypse beer. I mean, right now I probably have a Sonoma cask. Is it the one? It's the, the <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even tried it I haven't it had it, you know? <laughs> like, it's got to be new. Yeah. If it was something that was just, you know, an, an, an all-time beer for you, what would it be? Um, I mean, I have my favorite breweries within styles. Mm-hmm. Um, for hoppy beer, I drink Monkish. Amazing. 10 days out of 10. Um, for a stout, I drink Side Project. Uh, if it's a lager, for the longest time, I would have had an unfiltered, unpasteurized Pilsner Raquel. Probably not the case anymore. Oh, I'm leaning more towards German yeah. lager brewing. Um, I had an idea. The question w- framed slightly differently would have been, what would be your des- dessert, like deserted yeah, island, island beer? Yeah, yeah. I think that that, for the longest time, was Orval, because like, it was super delicious, fresh, but it also ages well. It's a kind of one of the few beers yeah. in the world that actually does that transition very well um so yeah that's really hard, interesting because the, the Orval like little centerpieces uh Mikel that was his uh pre-apocalypse beer was Orval as I well so, yeah. yeah I think he even has a tattoo <laughs> he's got somewhere. the tattoo yeah. yeah um thanks so much Henrik really Thank appreciate you. it dude and that's it another episode done a massive, massive thanks to Hennick for sitting down with me for that one. It was pretty good, wasn't it? I hope you uh, got a chance to go and see the video as well. It's beautifully done by my friend Luca uh, and really captures the kind of conversation that we had. Uh, a massive thanks for listening. As ever, if you want to like, share, subscribe, all that kind of stuff, it's very much appreciated. Big thanks to Tom Coucher for producing this episode. We'll see you next week. And as ever, stay thirsty. Stay thirsty.